Hi, this is Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, interviews with the living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This week, I'm very happy to have a family member on. Her name is Judy Schindler. She is my wife's aunt, and that also means she's the sister of my beloved mother-in-law. And she headed an award-winning public relations and marketing firm for more than 40 years and is now an actor and author and occasional speaker on such topics as marriage, relationships, and aging. She recently turned 81 years old, and uh, she also has several publications you can read on her website, which will be in the notes. Uh, One of her books that I read is uh, hilarious, and it's all about marriage. And uh, also, I've seen her perform, and she's also hilarious in that role. So I'm excited to welcome Judy to the show. Hi, Judy. Hi, Mike. I'm happy to be talking to you. Awesome. So we already got your age and everything, and uh, you live in the Chicago area, or are you in Chicago officially? In the city of Chicago, yes. Awesome. And how long have you lived in Chicago, actually? Well, in the Chicago and environs my entire life. Wow, that's cool. The book that I read, um, I, I'm sorry that I'm struggling for the name right now. Husband's and Owner's Manual, How to Survive a 50-Year Marriage. Uh, when did you read it? I wrote it, of, oh, I guess, well, actually, I, I wrote a one-woman show, and I became an actor. I decided I wanted a little more control over what I was doing, so I thought I would write a show for myself. And so I must have started that at least 10 years ago. And um, I began performing that for women's organizations and um, for uh, business groups and country clubs and city clubs. And I was not making the kind of money that justified the amount of money I put into it because there was a lot of video and audio visuals involved in this one woman show. So everybody kept saying, well, you should turn it into a book. Uh, And then I, I spent a lot more money producing the book and publishing it. And um, I don't think I ever, no, I actually, I think I covered my expenses, but that's about it. Um, And so I would, but I did sell more books at my performances. So they would pay me maybe three, four hundred, sometimes five hundred dollars for the show. And maybe I would sell another four or five hundred dollars in books. So that began to make it worthwhile. And then COVID hit and that stopped the shows and the sale of books. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And I got the book. We got it as a wedding gift. Um, I think from your sister, actually. Um, And uh, I actually have a divorce under my belt. And so I was reading it with like a different mindset than I think Alana, your um, niece. And I loved it. I thought it was incredibly accurate and uh, very helpful. So it's very funny to those of you listening, but it's also actually like very realistic. And I'm curious, uh, what has been like the male response to this book? Like what, what, what have men told you about it? Well, I can't tell you what my husband would say because he's never read it. He never saw my show. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't like the idea of me talking about him. Um, But I I think at those times I've done the performance with the men in the audience, they've laughed just as hard as the women, um, even though I was making mostly fun about them. (laughs) I agree, but it's it's different than a lot of the uh, cliché anti-male like sitcom stereotypes and a lot of the other stuff because i think it's actually no it's the real thing yeah yeah. you know (laughs) (laughs) never send a man to pick out paint (laughs) things like that and uh this is one of the reasons i want to have you on is you're incredibly sharp and witty and you have a great sense of humor and um so i knew you'd be a good guest but i'm curious has have you always had that sense of humor is it innate to your personality i i think that um if you know you know my my sister ann uh who is your mother-in-law uh, I think she's even got a sharper wit than I do. I thought sometimes hers was uh, a little biting. But yeah, I think that just sort of ran in her family. I, I really do. 
being funny. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and it also makes it a lot easier to marry into a family that has a great sense of humor. So now I'm going to turn the subject a little dark, but uh, in the darkness, we find light. And so the purpose of this podcast is to promote the subject of discussing death uh, out loud and making it not taboo, because I think that a lot of people aren't prepared for it when it affects someone they know or love or even worse when the diagnosis comes to them. So I'm going to start with asking you about um, what I know very little about, which is that you at a quite a young age lost your father um, abruptly. Um, do you want to share that story with us? Yes, um, I was 11 at the time and um, I got a call to the principal's office in the middle of the day one day and uh, I was told that my mother said, uh, ask me to go to the drugstore and have lunch there um, and then um, and not come home for lunch because I would normally walk home. Um, so I did. And that was not totally unusual. There were a lot of times when nobody was going to be at the house and she, I'd go to the drugstore and order a grilled cheese sandwich and a chocolate milkshake to bring lunch. <laughs> um but uh, on this day, then my uncle came and picked me up after school and told me that my father had died. And um, it, it created a, a seismic shift uh, in my the course of my life. And, um, you know, when you talk about the effects of death, it really did have a profound effect on me. Um, so I was 11 years old. My mother was... 32 and had three young children. I was the oldest and my sister Anne was only three at the time. Um, and uh, so her life course was, I, 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 at 11, I did not know how we would ever have another happy day. How would we have money? Where would we live? Uh, this was all very confusing uh, to me, but it straightened out fairly quickly. Um, my mother actually remarried uh, about a year and a half later, and she married a very a, a different a man who was extremely different from our father. Um, and he changed the course of our life too. But let me just backtrack for a second. Um, so. This was the 50s when you were supposed to think that you were going to grow up and you were going to get married and somebody was going to take care of you for the rest of your life. So I had some pretty good evidence that that was not necessarily true. And in fact, not only was my mother widowed at 32, but I had an aunt, my aunt Nikki, who was widowed at 32, or in the, in, in the 11th year of marriage. My aunt Faye was also widowed in the 11th year of marriage. And my aunt Joanne, who was the other sister, um, was divorced in the 11th year of her marriage. So I did not grow up thinking that I was going to get married and somebody was going to take care of me for the rest of my life. Um, so while most of my contemporaries majored in elementary education, so they have something to fall back on should something happen to their husbands, um, I instead 
decided I was going to major in journalism. Well, actually, it was a toss-up between theater and journalism. Um, but um, I chose journalism because my two role models, Brenda Starr and Lois Lane. But um, also, I just felt that I would have a better career with the skills I would learn with, as a journalism major than I would um, in, with theater skills. Uh, so that's exactly what I did. But um, it changed my life in other ways, too, because now my mother had a new husband. And so while we lived on the south side of Chicago, which was a very homogenized, homogenous community where uh, a very middle class, um, they because, again, this was the 50s and everybody looked like it was supposed to be a nuclear family, um, we moved to the suburbs and changed our name to our stepfather's name so that we would look like a nuclear family. And uh, we could, you know, pretend that he'd always been our father. So we moved to the suburbs, an entirely different environment. Um, and, of course, he was a very different kind of person, which changed things, too. But some inspiration, too. That's an inspiration, too. Yeah, no, exactly. It is. And why would you look back and have a negative attitude about anything because I mean you are where you are and you, you are happily married and you do have your family and uh, you have many grandchildren <laughs> and um, yeah I mean you're, you're you know and you're successful so but I am curious like how often now and in the last like 10 15 years do you think about your father like do you do you remember him and think about him or does the memory of someone fade even though they're biologically so important to you and in person so important to you um, for instance, if I think about him um, fairly often, I have uh, a couple of photos on my dresser, and so I think about him then. I, at many times in my life, the good times in particular, um, I thought about him and um, knowing how proud he would have been of me. Yeah, that's that's what I, I often think about when I first heard, uh, you know, obviously your sister Anne is the person who told me this story first, and... And she was really too too little, too young to really remember him. I don't know if she has any memories of him. Remember, she was only three. Yeah, and, and I know, um, unfortunately, you've lost your other sister in the time between then and now. She, she said she did not have many memories of him. Okay. But I did. Yeah. So do you think it affected them much less than you, or do you think that it uh, affected them a lot as well because they they don't even have memories of their own father. I don't know. I, I actually we never really discussed this, so I really can't say they didn't have memories of them. But they're and they probably weren't as certainly not Anne as entrenched in our community in, in the south side of Chicago as I was. So that that move to the suburbs was not as um, a big a life shift for them as it was for me. And I did not have a great relationship with my stepfather, but they had better relationships with him, So, especially Carol. So it probably wasn't as impactful on them as it was on me. Uh, however, however, both of them, as far as feeling that they, the, the desire to take care of themselves for the rest of their lives, um, Anne was a, a social worker, and the other sister became a nurse. So they didn't buy into that elementary education just in case. And so also, I mean, I'm assuming that also this kind of turned you into like almost like a semi-parent or like a step-parent yourself. I mean, were, did you feel like you had to look out? Not to them. 
No, no, not for them. That's cool. That's cool. I was I was expecting that to be the answer, but it's it's interesting to hear that it's the opposite. I think I've asked most of the questions I would want to know about it. And, you know, if there's anything you want to add as the interview goes on, that's fine. Well, the thing is that I did think that I was going to be a widow since <laughs> I was plotting this murder. But no, um, but I did have a plan for if he were to die in the 13th year of marriage, as I expected him to do, which was, first of all, I made sure he had a lot of insurance. <laughs> and, and because um, by that time, um, uh, my folks, my mother and stepfather had moved to Phoenix. I had planned that I would then, if he died, I would move because uh, my son Adam was born. So we'd move to Phoenix so my mother could take care of the baby and I could continue to work. And uh, what I would do is with the insurance money, I would buy a McDonald's franchise <laughs> because there was only one McDonald's at that time in all of Phoenix. And I figured, well, this is coming to Phoenix, so I was going to buy a McDonald's franchise and run that. And that's how I would support my son and myself. That, that actually does segue into kind of the other aspect I, I wanted to ask you about, which is, I mean, you're 81 years old. So straight off, you've already passed many finish lines that a lot of people don't expect they'll cross. And I having known you as, you know, about five, six years now, you're at it. I worked in hospice for a long time and I've just spent a lot of my life taking notes on healthy people who are over 60 probably because when I was young, 60 was old. And then as I got older, 70 was old. And now some people wouldn't even call 80 old. Well, you know what? From my perspective, 80 is old. <laughs> That's what I wanted to ask you. <laughs> so are you old? Do you feel old? And what advice do you have for people about being old? Oh my God. Well, in this last year, I feel I have aged a lot. I broke my foot in February, which ruined our, not ruined, but at least put a damper on our trip to Palm Springs. And then um, uh, five weeks ago, I had a, a lumbar fracture in my spine, um, which has been just god-awful to overcome. But even without those incidents, um, you know, memory loss, um, some other biological changes, um, a, a lot of things in this last year between 80 and 81, um, I have really felt the aging process. And when I talk to my friends, it's the same with them. Um, uh, but I feel it's very important to me not to just sit back and say, okay, I'm old, that's it. I can't, I can't, uh, I can't handle aging that way. I feel very much that um, I have limited shelf life, <laughs> and I want to take advantage as much as possible all the things that there are out there. I want to travel more. I want to meet new people. I want to join this book club, and I want to learn about things I don't know how to do. That's cool. So I mean, that was a kind of essentially always been my take is that it doesn't matter how old I am. I'm still just always here watching this giant plot called Earth. And it's fascinating to me. So unless the plot gets so horrible that I can't stand it, I would just want to keep watching. I'm not, I'm not that esoteric. <laughs> I don't look at, I'm not looking at the world. I'm looking at my life. What am I doing? What am I experiencing? Um, am I reaching out to everybody that I love? Am I filling my days with with as much as I possibly can? 
I'm not. Uh, I didn't quite get that illusion to sitting back and looking at the world go by. Well, no. First of all, I'm an esoteric person, and this is uh, my job as a host is to kind of bring those questions in. But more importantly to me is what you just said is really important to me. Is it easier to not be mean to people? Oh, that's never easy. <laughs> oh man. I don't, I don't think being nice is ever easy. You know, I'm impatient, and maybe I have, I have less patience now. You know, I try. I really do. I, you know, uh, people today, millennials and everybody around, they never say you're welcome. They always say, of course, or no problem. And it's often totally inappropriate. You know, I, I, if I go to the ATM and I go to the bank and, and my, the ATM eats my, my card and I go to the bank and I say, the ATM just ate my card and he says, no problem. I want to tell him that, no, of course, it's not his problem. It's my problem. It wasn't his ATM card. But I do try to restrain myself. I, I can't say being nicer. I, I'm a little impatient. I will admit that. But I mean more forgiving. Let's put it that way. If somebody wrongs you, yeah, okay, forgive I, I'm more forgiving. I don't think I'm nicer. That's great. No, that's a really good distinction that I wouldn't even think to make. So that helps me focus. And what about, um, like, do you care more or less about your legacy? Oh, very much important. I thought you were going to ask if I happens when I die. I was prepared to answer that question. Oh, I'm going to ask you that for sure. <laughs> but what is important is what you did on this earth, what things that maybe you changed for other people. That's really important. The, the memories I leave my six grandchildren. This is really important. In fact, I have been, in the last year, writing little memoirs with the idea of handing those over to him. I've been doing this. Um, there's an app that somebody gave me for my birthday where they send you a prompt every week. Well, I haven't been using their prompts a lot. Sometimes I did. But um, so I wrote about the house that I grew up in, which had a coal bin and a washing machine with a, a ringer. Uh, and then we'd hang up the clothes to dry. And I told them a lot of things about that. The books I read when I was their age, um, told them a lot about uh, my parents, uh, my grandparents as much as, as I knew and, re and could remember. And a lot of little stories about my career, celebrities I've met, travels that we've done, because I want them to be able to, I want to live on in their memories of me. I don't want them to just think of, oh, that was my father's mother and father. I want them to know more about us. So I, I do think, leg I think about legacy a lot. Wow, that's so cool. It's fascinating to talk to you because I think my personality is pretty similar to yours as far as like I love entertainment and um, I'm very impatient, like you just said. Um, but, you know, we also have a lot of differences. And one of the things you've done with your life that is very fascinating to me, and I mean that in a positive way, is that and, and I might be misreporting with with word choice what you did, but. I, I believe you actually adopted Tabitha Williams, who was one of our guests, actually. Uh, she was on episode 67. Can you kind of get into that? Hey, everyone. If you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com. Thanks. Um, well, I didn't adopt her. I always call her my pretend daughter. So one of the things that I 
Um, you know, I was very involved in the National Association of Women Business Owners here in Chicago. I helped found the Chicago chapter. I was a president. I, I was on the national board. That's one of the legacy things that I, I that uh, I am proud of. Um, but when I was just still on the board, I read about an organization on uh, the far north side of Chicago uh, called Family Matters, and they had a teen girls group that had started a business making jewelry. And I thought, well, gee, what a great thing for me to link up some kind of uh, connection between the National Association of Women Business Owners and this this group um, for us to be encouraging the next generation of entrepreneurs. So I got in touch with the um, executive director, and one of the things we did was we set up a mentorship program. So um, I did not. I met Tabitha through that, although I was not her assigned to uh, to be her mentor uh, at first. I was assigned to a girlfriend of hers who was uh, Mexican American. But a year later, her family sent her back to Mexico, and Tabitha requested me as her mentor. So we were together from the time in that in that role from the time she was 15 to today, and. Um, it just became closer than most of these relationships because uh, for a couple of different reasons. For one thing, Tabitha was very unusual in the fact that she, even at a very young age, could see and understand differences in different cultures and different people. I always say she, that when she talked to my friends, she sounded like, you know, a middle-aged lady. <laughs> well, when she talked to her friends, she could speak as street as anybody else. So she spoke almost different languages. Anyhow, she got it. She understood what we could do for her. And so it became a very close relationship. Um, she got a, a job at first um, after school in my neighborhood. So she'd spend the night. And when she was studying for AP tests, she would stay here. And then in the summertime, she got a job downtown. So she stayed here. So she was staying here and uh, back and forth between our house and her, her parents' house pretty much until um, she went off to college. And when she went off to college, I had gone college shopping with her. We just became closer and closer over the years. And many times she's had, she's had great highs in her life. Um, I don't know if she told you about it, but you know she was in food and beverage and worked for the Waldorf Astoria. Got to know the Versace family. They eventually hired her as a personal assistant, but that didn't last long because they're all a little crazy in the Versace family. Uh, but and then when she was without a job, she would be staying here, and sometimes it was a year at a time. And you know we just had been so close, and then and we went from my being her mentor to her being my mentor, and teaching me about being my arbiter of taste on clothing and food and what restaurants to go to and what I could wear and not wear. I mean, it just, it just became that kind of a relationship. And, you know, she's very close to everybody in my family. Yeah. And I mean, that's, I mean, she, to me, she is family because she came out for your 80th birthday party here. And, you know, I mean, it's just like, she's family. So yeah. Um, and I was proud to have her on a podcast as I'm equally proud to have you on. But I did, I did want to briefly touch on, cause you did have like a 40 year career that I didn't even ask you any questions about um, in PR and marketing. First of all, I'm just curious, uh, getting back to the theme of the show, death, um, how important is career, in your opinion, in the middle of your life? Like, should it be the main focus, a partial focus? Do you have any advice for people about career, family, work-life balance and all that? (laughs) Oh, it was all-consuming for me. 
I mean, I have one child, and um, I don't. I, I was conscious. I, I, I don't think it would have worked very well if I'd had more than one child, because we stayed in the city because it was easier for me. If we lived in the suburbs and I worked downtown, it would have been very difficult. Um, yeah, uh, I can't tell you. It weren't for the fact that I had a truly supportive husband who never told me I couldn't do anything. Um, it, he just, uh, it was truly a supportive partner um, in every aspect. I probably couldn't have done it, but I was pretty much consumed. And and so not like if you could do it all over again, what would you do? But what advice would you give to women out there who are feeling the same struggle, but maybe don't have the supportive husband or even if they do? Um, you know, it's not something I have thought about a great deal. And I know, you know, it's, I know so many women, um, who are, have full-time careers, obviously, from my women business owner days and from my acting life as well. I just don't know women who do too struggle with that issue to tell you the truth. So they're working it out some way. But I mean, we talked about like the younger generations and the lack of saying you're welcome and stuff like that. One of the, the reasons I'm asking about this is I think it's, we're sending like two very distinctly different messages to youth culture, but especially women about you can do it all and you should do it all. But then there's also the actual realistic reality, the, the reality of how hard it is to do that. And and you did do it, but you just said, you know, if I'd had more than one, I don't know if I could have and all that. So I'm just curious more about like, as you're looking back at 81, what do you think is like the appropriate balance between the work and the career and then just the rest of your life? I don't have a great answer for you, Mike. I'm really sorry. No, it's okay. You don't have to. Um, I just have to ask the questions and I got to try to see what I can learn. I think the reason I'm asking is because I'm 41 and, you know, Alana and I have one child and we're, we definitely want to have more, but we are both experiencing that same paradox, which is, gosh, you know, if we like sold the house and moved to like the middle of Kentucky and <laughs> we could retire, raise a family, have seven kids. But obviously that's not at all in our cards. So I'm always asking people who are older than me who have retired, not who are still working, what suggestions they would have. And, and I don't think a lot of people have a good answer to it. No, I mean, having a career was as, as important to me as having a child. And maybe that's wrong. Maybe it's, I mean, you know, I have huge guilt. <laughs> Adam, um, every year when Adam was going to a Jewish uh, day school, um, they would have their Hanukkah celebration, and you'd have to start with the kindergartens or the pre-kindergartens, uh, doing dreidel, dreidel runs, and spinning like tops, and finally you get to his class. And uh, So uh, one year, I had a lot of work back at the office, but I came for the Hanukkah thing, and he must have been like in fourth or fifth grade at the time. And I stayed through his performance, and then I waved and went back to the office. A couple of days later, somebody said to me, oh, you must have been so proud of Adam. His solo was so beautiful. <laughs> he never told me he had a solo. Oh, my God. I was not mother of the year that year. Oh, uh, yeah. So, you know, you don't want any advice from me on this work life. <laughs> 
well i think that's i don't think that's true because adam was also at my wedding and i <laughs> think he's happy and well adjusted and uh, like i said i mean he, how many grandchildren do you have he has six i have one child he has six we call that return on investment i know it's, it's incredible it's so cool um and and honestly he's one of the reasons that i think a big family would be fun i i what i gosh i mean they just they play games they have so many like great wholesome family times and, and they're doing something that i don't think a lot of americans are doing and i think the reason i'm asking all these questions is that i'm really preoccupied with socialization which happens in every culture and it has to happen but the american socialization which you also alluded to about the 1950s suburbia is that we're supposed to like naturally have a balance between our work and our life and i and i don't know if that's really accurate for many of us so um but but i think you did give a good answer and i think that all of your answers have been great um as we are wrapping up, I always give my guests the chance to just have the floor and say whatever you want to say. So with your infinite wisdom or your 81 years of wisdom, however you want to look at oh, it. Oh, <laughs> okay. so I, hear, I have some advice on aging. How about that? Yeah, perfect. We'll, we'll do that, please. So my first piece of advice is get rid of stuff. You know, I had this little accident and I live in a three-story townhouse. I got to get out of this house. So, you know, you want to get rid of your things while you still can the things you don't want anymore um, and, and that you would probably never buy over again. So the silver, the china, the crystal, all those kinds of things, you really have to get rid of the clutter and get rid of the stuff you don't want. Number two, you have to stay up, stay with technology. You can't poo-poo it and be afraid of it um, because it will expand your life. It, it opens so many doors. I mean, uh, during COVID uh, and isolation, uh, those of us who could Zoom and figure it out and create projects with other people um, over the Internet, uh, we, we were active and having a great time. It was the other people who didn't know what to do with themselves, ate, made cookies. I don't know what they did. Uh, so technology, I, I think um, meeting new people, and that can be through uh, getting active politically or joining a book club. Um, I joined the League of Women Voters just not to, also during COVID um, because of all the things that were happening and what really wanted to get involved politically. And um, reach out to the people that you love, uh, people that you haven't seen in years. You may never get a chance to do it again, so I think you should do that. And I think you should forgive uh, past wrongs because most of them probably didn't matter anyhow. And embrace the people that, that you love and be grateful what you, for what you do have. So that's my general pieces of advice. Uh, that was incredible. And, and I wrote it down and I plan to actually look back at that and really try to start adjusting on that. I think essentially what I've taken from this interview that's really important to me is that it doesn't matter how you do it. It just matters that you enjoy doing it and that you have a good attitude. So um, I want to thank you so much, Judy Schindler from Chicago. Well, thank you, Mike Oppenheim in Phoenix. <laughs> and uh, like I said, everyone um, in the bio, you'll have uh, two links to her websites, but um, judyschindler.com is the best way to find her. And uh, I strongly recommend her marriage book as not only a fun gift for someone who's getting married, but also a gift for somebody who's already married um and again it's excellent advice and uh to everyone listening at home the best way to support the show is to head over to mikeyop.com and sign up for a 
free subscription to the weekly newsletter. And if you want to go the extra mile, please become a premium subscriber. And there's all sorts of extra bonuses and goodies for you. Thank you, everyone. This is Mike Oppenheim, and we will see you soon. Walking along when I hear this song, man, I'm walking to you.